Welcome to the Enviro Health Podcast. Your host today is Carl D'Souza. Today we talk to Dr. Diana Varadhan on her research about how air pollution impacts young people's health. So Diana, what are you looking forward to in the future? I'm my personal life. I'm looking forward to the game on Sunday. Good. Uh, a little bit uh, further away to the holidays, have tons of activities planned with my children. Yeah, just looking forward to the lifting of the restrictions, seeing my friends, going out, having barbecues at home. So lots of things to, to think about and, and the future is looking bright. Well said, it is looking bright. What has been your career path which led you to where you are right now? I have a background in environmental sciences. I did that back in my country. I'm originally from Colombia. I did environmental science here as well. I did a master's in environmental technology here at Imperial. After I finished my master's, I was very into waste management. And I thought my career will be, yeah, in waste management. I love landfills and incinerators and recycling. I was just, that was my perfect weekend spent at a landfill. But I finished my uh, my master's and I was trying to look for a PhD in that area and, and but the opportunity wasn't there. So I started working as a consultant, as an air quality consultant and kind of changed my perspective and I fell in love with, uh, with, well, with air quality. And, and yeah, so that's how I, I got into air quality. Uh, I did sometimes in the consultancy and then after that, I started a PhD, and the PhD was a bit of a hybrid uh, between environmental science and social science. So I was looking to uh, develop uh, methods for engaging with the public to be able to communicate air pollution as a health risk. So that's, that was the topic of my PhD, and it looked like there was definitely a gap out there in terms of bringing the social science component into the air quality quality work that, that we do. So I think I found, in a way, my niche through my PhD. And this is what I have been doing since I finished my PhD, just working in the same sort of area. So many interesting topics you just mentioned. Um, you said that you came in from Colombia, you also have kids. Um, how do you find the change in scenery or the change in environment between the two countries? Also, how do you manage the stresses that go along with having kids and having a family, having to do a PhD? How do you manage that in the academic space? Well, the first question, the differences between Colombia and here are, are huge. I, I feel very blessed to, to be here. I have never had any problems with people not liking me <laughs> or anything. I have never felt an outsider. People over these now 18 years have been absolutely great. I think I can call it home here. Still have some issues about the food. Obviously, the food in Colombia is much nicer. But yeah, I, I think it's great. I love the, the seasons. Um, back in my country, well, Colombia is on the equator, so that means that we don't have these different seasons. It's just like the same all the time. And having here the different seasons and see spring and the summer and the autumn and winter, I find it fascinating. And it has been 17 years and I'm still thrilled every time I see a drop of snow or when I see a brown leaf in the, in the, in the autumn. Yeah, I, I like all, all this and, and I love that uh, about being here. And regarding the uh, challenges of like, uh, well, doing a PhD and being an early career researcher and having a young family, um, I have a 14 year old, so he's in this very hard teens years but I also have a little one who's four 
yes, there's a 10-year gap, I know. <laughs> so it's like I just started all over again. But it's, it's fascinating having these, these two kids and different ages, and it's like living two different worlds. I think that the strategy or, or the thing that has uh, helped me to cope with the stress and have that balanced work-life, well, first is uh, my husband. He's great, and he's very supportive of my work, and he helps a lot in the house. So, yeah, credit to him. But also I try to have small tasks of objectives for daily and, and weekly. And I, I, I don't really, I'm not that hard on myself if I can't meet these objectives. I say, well, you know, next week, unless it's something really, really important that I need to finish. But in general, I try to, you know, to give myself the chance to, to, to be a bit late if I have to um, and it's just the way I, it has to be because having children obviously you know my children are my priority and not over anything and everything so first them and then you know anything else so yeah I think that is some good advice right there where you just said um, children are your first priority which is good advice for anyone starting out who might have kids and they might be on on the fence not yet decided family or, or work but I think you've just demonstrated that there is a, a work balance that you can achieve so what has been some of the best advice that you have received in your professional development I think early on when I started my PhD I was told to have open eyes to all sorts of opportunities and do networking and, and, and talk to people and I know the the nature of the work I do kind of allows for that not doing lab work, so doesn't mean I have to spend my days in, in lab that can, you know, like away from everybody else, but talking to your neighbors and your families and having that that big network of people around you because you can definitely learn from absolutely everyone. And I think that that was very important to kind of widen that, that network and those uh, connections. And that has been very, very valuable for my career development, for making connections uh, later on and building those relationships with different groups, with different networks. So for those in the audience who do not know Diana, she is very involved in public engagement and also science communication. So can you just tell us how and why did this become important for you? Well, as I was saying, the part of my uh, PhD work was to develop methods to communicate air pollution as a health risk through the general public. So, in essence, the, the, the nature of my work was to engage with the public, uh, and I have been doing that since, since the beginning of my PhD. As part of my field work, while doing my PhD, I work with a number of community groups across London. So I work with uh, uh, senior citizens, I work with mother and baby groups, I work with COPD patients, I work with um, primary school children, with NGOs. So that kind of gave me a really good perspective of how different groups of people perceive the issue of air pollution how well the understandings and awareness of the issue are and therefore how we can then develop ways in which we can communicate with these very specific groups. You just mentioned the different groups that, you, that you've worked with. Um, what are the most challenging as well as rewarding aspects of this research and public engagement? I think the most uh, rewarding 
part of it is really just to be out there with the people is super fun. <laughs> I, I, I love it. It's just really interesting yeah, to talk to people all the time, to learn from them uh, and to build these rela relationships. I think is, that is great. I think what has been very difficult is that by default, when you're working with people, you are you don't own your own time and your timetables and your deadlines are not yours anymore. If you're working with people, you kind of depending of you know their time and and their availability to speak to you or to work with you. Um, so so it's a bit difficult to manage that, that expectations, if you will, uh, your expectations and their expectations, and can you bring those together? Could you just tell us a bit about the projects that you've done and the work that you've done? Um, I know you mentioned actively researching um, measuring personal exposure of school children. And also you mentioned in your work um, participatory approach. So for the audience that might not possibly know what that is, could you just give us a few details on that? So some of the work that, that we do is to uh, measure uh, personal exposure. So I'm sure that the previous person that you interviewed, <laughs> he was talking all about, you know, like fixed monitoring stations and the data that you get from that and how uh, personal exposure then kind of complements that and gives you a better indication of really what people are breathing as they go through their normal days as to when they take the bus, when they are at home with their schools and how they move through these different microenvironments and, and the different levels of air pollution that you breathe while you are during the, uh, in, these, in these spaces. But then comes the issue that when you bring the human factor, when you bring people to this kind of work, it's very different from you gathering data from a fixed monitor. You, if you're gathering that type of like fixed data, you just put your monitor up there and then it gives you the data you want, right? Mm -hmm. uh, however, would you ask someone to carry a monitor for you as they go about their normal days, then it's very challenging. The person has to be like really, really engaged in the work. Uh, they have to adhere to protocols. They have to use the monitors appropriately. And everything gets a lot more challenging because their data, the quality of the data that you manage to gather will depend a lot on whether this person is really engaged and on board with what you're doing. So we found that we definitely need to kind of bring these two things together. So to for us to be able to get that uh, data, that level of, you know, like personal exposure data, we really needed to have that community engagement. And uh, as, as I say, as part of my PhD and some of the work that we did afterwards, uh, we have found that enabling people to be an active part of the research process is a really good way of engaging people, uh, help us to get good quality data, uh, to facilitate adherence with protocols, and which these in turn could lead to changes in behavior, which I'm sure you're going to ask me later. So how did your research lead you to working in schools? And why specifically schools? Why not a different age group? Well, we know that air pollution affects us all, but we also know that there are certain groups in society which are more at risk of the dangerous health effects from air pollution. And those are the elderly, people that have uh, under respiratory conditions, uh, and we have the, the children as well. And children have, they are developing, their lungs are still developing, and, and the damage caused at this age can affect them for the rest of their life. Um, so it's a very specific group that we feel very, concerned about and we want to, to work with them to understand when and where they are exposed to the highest levels of air pollution and then 
uh, we can uh, advise policymakers which interventions can be developed and, and where they can be uh, adopted, where they will yield the best results or the highest impact, if you will. In your research, your methodology, you described um, participatory methods and how they have the potential to be effective and engaging tools for raising awareness. What were the key points you found about air pollution and school children's understanding of this with regard to their behavior change? Well, the work that we have been with children, we have been doing with children, focusing on first education. So we we provide that advice and information about how air pollution can affect us, what are the sources, and providing these first layer of engagement, if you will, um, which is like the educational component. But then we know, and there is a lot of uh, literature in this regard, that just having information about things that doesn't necessarily lead to behavior change. So there's when we bring this other component, uh, enables people to actively take part in the research process. And the way we have been doing it, or the way we did in the latest project that we did, was to powering children to to be the air quality scientists themselves. So they were gathering their own data, they were carrying the monitors, and within the social context. So another thing is that sometimes we, we have information of air pollution data from other countries, from other cities, from other local authorities, but not necessarily from where these children are living. With the project that we have been doing, we're gathering this very particular data, which is set within the social context of the neighborhoods, and having that knowledge and allows them to then identify where and when they can perhaps avoid sources of air pollution to reduce their exposure. And, and something that we found very interesting as well is that through this work, people were not only able to identify where and when they could reduce their exposure, but when and where they could reduce their contribution to the problem. And I thought that that was, that was a really good outcome of the work we have been doing. I want to come back to this methodology of um, the participatory methods. Um, what were the different frameworks that you use to build this participatory model? Participatory research is really the umbrella term for a number of frameworks out there. So it's better known for by citizen science. There is also action research. There is also community-based participatory research. And the main objective of all these uh, participatory methods is to engage the public in an active way, if you will, mm -hmm. in the research process. They differ in different ways, and I'm not going to go through that. But for the work that I've been doing, instead of labeling something by citizen science or action research, community-based participatory research, we have been just calling, the, calling it participatory research, which is really the umbrella term for all these uh, frameworks. So this, this umbrella term for this framework that you mentioned, can the same framework be adapted or adopted onto other projects or different studies? Is it a matter of one size fits all or does one need to then change the framework so that it's tailored to their area of research? Yeah, I think definitely the the idea of one fits all is is, is no it's overrated. So <laughs> there isn't a silver bullet then. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> there isn't a silver bullet. No, there is okay. not something that you can use and then reuse. Definitely have some guidelines uh, and you have best practice, if you will, that you can then well learn from, from other studies. But you will really need to look at what community are you working with, what is the social context, uh, what is important for them, and just make sure that wherever you, you, your priorities are, are in line with the community's 
priorities and that will lead to yeah better results and uh, and the successful accomplishment of your objectives i think in your work you said that you the research that you did making the invisible visible with the school children you said that there was the first layer of getting the school children engaged and then there was another layer as well um what exactly did you do talk to us about your research so we first um engaged with uh, well particularly talking about children we ran educational sessions where we went into a number of schools we talked about air pollution causes and effects in very simple terms well really depending on the age because we have been working from with children from key stage 1 and 2 so that's like really covering the whole primary school spectrum from reception to year 6 so that means that whatever you plant or all the material that you have for a seven-year-old is not going to be the same for a nine-year-old. So you, oh, even within the setting of a school, we have had to adapt the material that we use and adapt the way we talk about air pollution and the language we use, the sort of like jargon that we use or get rid of the jargon, you might say. So yeah, this is this, this is the first thing, kind of like uh, bringing these topics to, to the school setting. We found that schools are really good or over the years have have gotten really good at highlighting climate change problems but they bring environmental issues such as like water and air pollution climate change all together and it's a mix of environmental problems but they do not specifically focus on air pollution also there have been a lot of information for the children about recycling so when we talk about air pollution all the children they bring oh recycling and they kind of bring that knowledge and the things they have learned at school about the environment when we're talking about air pollution so really what we were trying to do through these educational sessions is to highlight air pollution as a one particular problem with sources with health effects but also with highlighting that there are things that the children and the families can do to reduce their exposure to air pollution the other project that I think you were involved in was the Breathe London wearable study. Was this carrying on from the making the invisible visible study? Was it a completely different project? In the invisible visible was a part of my PhD. So as I was saying, I work with a number of community groups across London, helping them design, implement and disseminate their own air pollution monitoring projects. One of the groups I worked with was primary school and that was the empirical data I got for that particular publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, after my PhD, I was coordinated with London wearable study. That was a Probably the work I did in my PhD was a bit of a pilot, if you will, because okay, the Breathe London okay. was a huge study. We worked with five primary schools across London. There were 258 children in total. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really big project. Just jumping back to making the invisible visible, um, how did you manage to, to go to the schools or, so to speak, recruit the schools and the children and how did you manage to get them involved? What was your first point of contact? How did you open up the entire project? The, that was the first community group I did. Well, the school. So that was back in 2015. And I will say that back in the day, air pollution wasn't as fashionable 
as it is now, <laughs> that we see it on like every single newspaper and, and all, and we talk about air pollution a lot more than, than, than what it was before. So yeah, it was, it was a new topic to bring to schools and, and the engagement wasn't as easy as it could be now. I remember that the first school I reached out to have this conversation with a science teacher and I was all excited, like any PhD student doing the first bit of field work, talking to them about the, the work and look, we're going to give children the air pollution sensors, they're going to be able to carry their own project, measure what they are breathing. And the, the science teacher said it was a terrible, terrible idea. Say, why do I want children to know that they are breathing air pollution? Why do I want the parents to be worried about this? They have other things to think about. They worry about what are they going to eat tonight? So no, no, we're not doing this. And I, yeah, and, and that was my the first school I contacted and that was the response. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be much harder than what I thought. So I then changed the strategy, if you will, like, okay, we need to frame this in a different mm-hmm. way. I will really need to highlight that, yes, we are supposed to air pollution, but there are things you can do. And then from then on, I thought as part of, of the work I'm doing throughout my PhD, it's not just to find out what people are breathing uh, and what sort of, yeah, what sources of pollution they are, they are out there, what are they uh, exposed to, but also, you know, towards the end of the project, when we, when we have collected the data, I really need to provide some advice. I really need to tell them, look, there is a problem, but there are also things that you can do. And things that were in the power, no, uh, we need, you know, for this road to be closed and be the traffic be sent in a different way, because that is out of their control. And people say, like, well, that's nothing to do with me. I really need to provide them advice, something that they can do today, this afternoon, when they do, they, 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 they pick up the children from school. So we started part of the work with the Brit London in the origins to identify like key tips, if you will, like things that people could do to reduce their exposure that were actually under the control. What were some of the few things that you measured in, in your project, making the invisible visible and how, how did the children take or have a better understanding of what you were trying to explain to them? Actually, there were two, two big highlights. One was that we identified that exposure levels. I was measuring all the instruments that the children were using were black carbon, black carbon monitors, so we were measuring black carbon. And we identified that the levels of black carbon were higher when children were walking through the main road compared to when the children were walking back streets. So we show, uh, well, I showed children that difference in exposure levels. And then children start thinking, well, what can we do about it? Maybe I could, you know, take the back street instead of the main road. Um, but then together with this work, I did, uh, I used social science research methods to understand what people thought about the data we were gathering and, and the implications that this data had uh, on their lives. And then we found out that actually, well, yeah, we can tell people, yeah, go to the back street to reduce their exposure to air pollution. But then some parents were highlighting, well, actually, I can't really take the back street because it's, you know, it's quiet. I can't tell my children go through the back street because there is no people around. I'd rather he breathes, you know, air pollution that mm-hmm. he's bringing himself, you know, at risk by going to the back street. And then we start thinking about, well, where is really this the risk perception of how people contextualize the, the, the risk that these different, you know, uh, factors can, can, can give you. So it's a very interesting work. And, and when you realize that, yeah, there's not identifying one thing, but how these things can help you look at different like, things in a different way. 
So um, were there a lot of parents who were more concerned for their child's safety when it came to taking a back street, for example, as like you just mentioned, they would rather them just breathe the polluted air? No, no, there were not many. There were like a couple that highlighted that. But again, it's, it's good to consider, you know, that this is a, a problem and, and, and should be highlighted. So maybe when you're making recommendations, it's not just about, you know, taking the back street, but, you know, also, you know, making streets safe. And that goes to all this holistic view of how we making, you know, the overall uh, space where we where we live cleaner and, and safer for, for our children. Right. In, 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 I, I will say that in, in general, the, the project was very well received and well, that particular project and, and children and parents did uh, highlighted some of the changes they will do to reduce the exposure uh, and also kind of raise that awareness across the school. Um, when I did the interviews later with the teachers and with the uh, deputy head of the school, she was telling me that some of the children that took part in that project, now they wanted to have like their own air quality group or something in the school uh, and advocate for cleaner air within, you know, their own uh, means or mm -hmm. things that they could do. And they were thinking about doing anti-idling campaigns just outside the school. So that's how, you know, you bring that information in, you, you kind of gather that empirical data that shows that there is a problem and kind of stimulate that thinking about well, what can we do. So what was the main features from this project, which you could then translate across to the, the Breed London Variable Study? I believe that when you report some of your work, we should, not, we should not only report the successful bits, but also the things that didn't go quite well. And I think, for example, when I was doing the the surveys with the with the with the school back in my PhD, the way I designed the surveys, the the way they were used, the way they were given to the parents, that didn't work quite well. Which then we changed the approach when we were doing the the Bridge London. I think that that was important to kind of reflect back on what things didn't work well and how we can then, yeah, make them better. What was the main aim of this Breed London wearable study? With Breed London, uh, the main objective was to characterize children's air pollution exposure. Um, well, primary school children air pollution exposure. And how did you go about recruiting the schools to participate in the study? Back in 2015, we have the air quality audits around, well, in 50 primary schools across London, which identify what the levels of air pollution were in different primary schools and, and what things schools could do to then uh, reduce the air pollution the children were breathing and all sorts of things. So it was a quite intensive work done by the Greater London Authority, uh, as I said, back in 2017. So because Brit London was also uh, funded by the Greater London Authority, then the five primary schools that we work with for, for this project were part of these 50 primary schools. So that was our first selection criteria, if you, if you will, so that these five primary schools have to be from there. And then after that, we really wanted to have schools in different areas of London. So we managed to uh, engage with one in the north, in the south, west, and in the east, so kind of like having different areas of London. So that was quite interesting as well. Over the years, I have developed a number of contra uh, contacts with uh, local authorities and with NGOs. So we kind of started looking at the schools that way and see what schools were interested in taking part. And yeah, that's how we, we engage with, with our schools, really. Were there any barriers? Did the schools push back? Did some of them come back to you say, um, no, thank you, just shut the door? 
No, I think that that was in 2019 and air pollution was a, a big topic. <laughs> that was just <laughs> post a uh, dieselgate scandal and, and all this. It was kind of like people were really, really interested and, and the schools were very good. They were very engaged uh, and it was a very high profile project. We have lots of media attention. Almost for every school we have media reports and things and the children love that so they, they they did see that there was you know it, it was a it was a big project and and that helped as well with engagement yeah that's, that's very interesting so all of the schools you said had um some sort of media engagement how did you find engaging with the school children explaining the science to them um, you mentioned previously that they did come with some background if you had to do it again what would be the easiest way to communicate your message across to, say, for example, 12-year-olds? One of the things that work particularly well, but we could have done better, was explaining the technology behind the backpacks. Because children were really fascinated by the fact that they were carrying an air pollution sensor, but because the air pollution sensor was placed inside the bags, they could not really see it. And, and there was all these questions about, so are you go we're going to collect the air pollution and we have to carry all this air pollution in our bags for a whole <laughs> week? Or, or they were asking, uh, where are you going to empty all this air pollution in, like in your office so that you will count it? And then there were all these questions about how is this is working and... and Probably we didn't, uh, I would say, case for for explaining that in 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 a better detail. So I'll definitely think that for future work we should be a little bit more, um, yeah, specific. I think that mm -hmm. uh, that will help kind of clean up sort of the misconceptions and things around how we measure pollution, especially because it was something that they couldn't really see. Though they find it fascinated that they could measure the air pollution, and I think they understood that it was more about you know the technology behind the backs. I think we could have done better. Are we allowed to talk about that technology in the backpacks, or is this um, confidential oh, information? Yeah, but I don't like it. <laughs> it's boring. <laughs> uh, but well, what I will say is that af after that we did, oh well, the, the this. I'll, I'll tell you why, 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 why I think it's interesting. So the bags measure uh, PM 2.5 uh, nitrogen dioxide, and they also have a GPS unit. And so the, using the GPS unit allows us to see where and when the children were, while we were measuring the air pollution levels. So after we did the project, actually, and these bags were responsible, well, they were Dyson bags. Dyson was the manufacturer of the bags, so we used their bags. They went through a competitive process before we selected the monitors to use for this project. They were, there was a competitive process uh, where uh, some of the members of our team checked how accurate these bags were and did all the, 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 yeah, the, the, the investigation about whether they were accurate or not. And, and then we selected these particular sensors. So those are the sensors that, that we use for, for the project. Interesting. Uh, so you've, you've got your backpack from Dyson. You've got your sensors in there. You go up to a school. How do you then, was it up to you to choose which student gets the backpack and which doesn't? How does that selection process take place? I think what I have found over the years working with schools is that you really need to understand the different settings and give, well, the school, in a way, the autonomy to work with or to think about what is best for, for the particular setting. So for this particular project, we found that some schools have already like a group of travel ambassadors. So they, when they saw these activities, oh, this is great for our travel ambassadors, other schools have their school council. So the school council was like the first, the first children they contacted. Other schools thought, actually, we're going to make this available for everybody. Everyone should have a go. So yeah, it varied from school to school. But instead of us having, you know, you have to select children of 
two of this class and two of this year group and another five of this year group. Um, yeah, we didn't do that. And, and I personally think that it's better to work with the school to have that, you know, two-way conversation as to what they think is best, what things they will work and what help them as well to achieve their own internal objectives. For example, with the travel ambassadors, they were really committed to the to their program. They wanted to gather some data so they can link it with the little group. So that kind of link with that, they were with what they were doing already. So it wasn't like another thing, but it was part of what they were doing. Right, right. So were the were the teachers also involved and were the parents involved in the study or were the parents more involved in the study compared to the kids? Uh, did you find that some of the parents were possibly doing the bulk of the homework? Well, the children were the ones that have to carry the, the, air, the, the bags. So I think it was mostly the children, really. Uh, so... This this rucksack uh, is an average children school bag, which is empty in the inside and you just have a small sensor with a battery powered by a battery at the front of the rucksack. So that meant that the bag was completely empty for the children to put all the school stuff and effectively replace the normal school bag for this bag. So they were carrying the bag. Uh, as they went about their normal school day in the morning uh, and then in the afternoon. So obviously they, they, the parents have to be engaged because all these, as, because academic body goes through ethics, approvals and all that. So we need to communicate with the parents, tell them what the project is about, get their consent as part of our qualitative work with the uh, service with the parents before the project and after the project. So that, that meant that the parents were involved in what we were doing as well. We wanted to capture some data about what parents thought about air pollution before and after the project. So, yeah, they, they, they were involved to that extent. And with the schools, we had uh, school teachers. Uh, some of the school teachers were carrying the bags. Uh, on average, about five primary school teachers were carrying school bags as well. Some were interesting finding out what they were breathing as well as they were commuting to school and, and back. And other ones just really wanted to encourage the children and to say, look, I am also doing mm-hmm. it. You know, it's something that we all we all doing. You mentioned earlier that the, the backpacks, they had the sensor in their battery pack, um, a GPS tracker. How comfortable were the parents with allowing their kids to be tracked, so to speak? How was data anonymized? Bear in mind, you have to comply with GDPR, like you mentioned, for your ethics. Yeah. The, the bag had a little button that the parents could access to turn off the GPS off for an hour. So, and that, all this information was in the uh, in the participant information sheet. So, we say if at some point you feel uncomfortable, well, I mean, we will explain. This has a GPS uh, device. We will be able to know where you are while you are carrying the bag. However, if at some point you feel uncomfortable with this, there is a button here, it has a picture and all, and you can just like uh, press this, this button and then that will stop the GPS for um, gathering data for an hour. And if you still don't want to just press the button again. But nobody you did it. We found that out of 250 AA people, no, uh, yeah, no, no, nobody used that. Their parents, uh, I have to clarify. So this... Access to this button was uh, in a pocket which had combination, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know that the parents didn't do it. Well, I'm pretty much sure that the parents didn't do it. But some of the locks were open, a couple. And later, talking to the children, I found there was a little you know, competition going on about who could break the codes. And it was just like they wanted to see what was behind that lock. Right. Um, and I think it was... 
there are two things, you know, having the lock to protect the unit, to protect, well, in this case, that they were not messing around with, with the GPS. But as I think it was probably very clear because then the children thought there's something interesting behind that lock that we need to find out. You kind of put, you know, like what is, uh, which can't access, then is more, you know, interesting. So yeah, there were some, some of these locks were open. Okay, uh, none of the the sensors were tampered with, so I'm no. glad you got all of your data. Uh, <laughs> so what what did you find? What was what was the outcome? What's the results? So from this project, uh, we actually had our paper published last week, which I forgot to oh, share. Oh, congratulations! With you. So yeah, we have from from this work, we have two publications, like quantitative and qualitative publications. So the the, the qualitative publication has been published in a, a teacher's journal. The work that we did with the children about trying to communicate the application as a health risk and using these participatory methods and what worked and what didn't work and how we think these sorts of activities should be done in the future and make some recommendations. And we also have our quantitative publication where we actually have some of the data, the quantitative data that we gathered that was published in Environmental International two weeks ago. And, and in this, we, well, we, we talk about the project and, and the method and, and what I was telling you earlier. We, we bring that participatory approach and we highlight how important it is to have, in this case, the children on, on board and and to believe in what they're doing has a, a purpose, especially when you're collecting this kind of data and you have to ask a little kid to carry this back from Monday to Friday and, and take care of the back and don't lose it and don't make it wet and you really, really need to be, you need them to be responsible and, and to take care of the back. You need them to be part of the research and work with you. So we, we highlight those things in, in, in this uh, paper. And in terms of the data, well, we, we found that children are exposed to high levels of PM 2.5 during the commute to school compared to when at school. And we found that these levels are higher during the morning rush hour compared to the afternoon rush hour. So those were some of the um, key findings. And we also found that children commuting to the back street are exposed to lower levels than the children that commute to the main road. And children that commute to the back streets are exposed to lower levels to the, compared to those that commute to school by car or by bus. Essentially, the highest pollution was then if you're in a car on a main road. Is that correct? Yes. So then would it be possible to do an intervention study? For example, do you think the, the participants' parents would change their behavior or the way the kids travel to school? As part of the qualitative data that we gather, 31% of the well, parents and children that took part in our projects say that they have changed or are planning to change their behavior in order to reduce their exposure to air pollution. And that means going, like taking an alternative route or changing the mode of transport. Uh, but I should highlight that doesn't mean that the other 70 don't care and won't do anything, but that there is another great percentage of children and parents that are already doing the right thing. So they feel that what they're doing, they're already either cycling or scooting to school, so they won't change anything. But from those that, that could do something, uh, 31% uh, said they will change their behavior. Um, and now the, the key is how long-lasting these behavior changes are, of course, and that probably will be some, some things to think about for future work. Is it possible to do a follow-up study in that case to see if behavior has changed so to speak i think it will be a bit challenging to do that because school children will move through the years <laughs> so you might not be able to find many of the children that work with you at that point in time so that was in 2019 so 
year six, year six back then is gone, year five is gone, year four back then is gone this year. So you kind of lost already three years. So that, that will be uh, a bit challenging to do, I think, with that particular group. I think if you are planning to do some follow-up work or to do like an um, assessment of how long-lasting these behavior changes are, you should really plan it right from the beginning and take that into consideration. So perhaps working with early, um, early year groups so you can get back in touch with them when they're in year four or five and then check. In your research, you found that children were exposed to high levels of air pollution. How high is high and at what point do you say this is high enough or this is below the threshold? Is there a threshold? I think particularly for the work that we have been doing with children, we don't say high, we say higher. <laughs> so we compare it to something. So we compare it to the levels, air pollution levels, the back street compared to the air pollution levels on the main road. And we always try to use those comparisons. We don't take the numbers. So we, when we communicate these findings to, to children and to the families, we don't use absolute values because they, they don't really mean anything. When we look at guidelines sort of a UHO safe levels, we look annual means, you know. And here we're looking very short periods of time. So for us, it's important just to highlight how the exposure levels compare different things. So how, what are, is it higher? Is it lower? And, and, and how, what can you, you can reduce the higher one. So you were explaining to the kids that it is qualitative and not quantitative in terms of high and low. So you did not give them an actual number, but you're just telling them that if you go on the main roads, it's the highest. But if you take a back road or if you, if you walk through a park, for example, then it will be lower. No, when we, when we show the, the children the findings and the families, we put together charts with some graphics, very uh, uh, general information about the findings. And we did put the numbers, but in the, in the text and when we were talking to the children, we won't focus on the numbers. We will just mm-hmm. focus on okay. what they mean. So this is, is higher when the levels of pollution you are breathing are higher when you go to, when you commute to school in the morning compared to when you go to, in the afternoon. For a little kid and even for the parents, it, will be, it won't be meaningful if you say it was, I don't know, seven and six, but what is seven? Is seven bad? Is no bad? It's like, and we don't have a, the, the enough understanding and information to kind of make these statements and it will just create confusion, I, I think. Talking about high and higher and the main roads being higher than the back roads, for example, was there anything that jumped out at you? Was there a surprising result you were not expecting to find? I think that with the Brief London, we, we pretty much corroborated the information that we had. But there was something that I found really interesting when I did my PhD, measuring children's exposure to air pollution. And that was the fact that two children left the school at the same time. They were both carrying the black carbon monitor. And when, within two minutes after they left the school, they the air pollution levels just went higher. They, what I mean, higher, I can give you a number. They were like 90 or something. They were just like <laughs> off the charts. Right. And, and then when they gave me the monitors back, I look at that and then that very high levels were over like a period of five minutes. And then I look at the GPS data. I was like, this is just in front of the school. I mean, can it be a car? Well, you know, mm-hmm. what was that? And then when I was talking to the parents and trying to understand what was, and that's why it's important actually to do these exercises with the with with the person that actually measuring the air pollution levels because they, if something like this strange comes up, you can actually kind of get some information about what they were doing. So this is really important. It looks like the children just left the school right in front. There was an ice cream van and oh, they were buying boy. their ice creams 
right there in front of the school for about four or five minutes. Uh, and then it was very clear in the chart, you know, they come out after two minutes, the levels go really, really high. And then they each go a different way. And then the air pollution levels go to what we normally used to see on the roads. Uh, and, and that was really like, I, I, I didn't expect that. Uh, and that was, yeah, as I said, back in 2015. And we were very surprised with that one. And uh, and actually, the implications that this this school have, right? Because then, you know, I felt that it was my duty to get in touch with the head of the school and say, "Look at this," uh, and I believe they had a word with the with the ice cream man, <laughs> tell him to park somewhere else or something. But just kind of open another kind of worms about, you know, like changing the technology using a I don't know a different engine source for the ice creams to be cold or something. I don't know. As long as the children get the ice cream, you say. <laughs> <laughs> In okay. some local authorities, actually, ice cream vans have been banned completely from the areas, but other local authorities haven't generally adopted that measures. So. Interesting, very interesting. So ice cream vans should be electric, basically, or low pollution. Protect the kids. Yeah, definitely. And now every time I see an ice cream van, like my, my four-year-old, we go next to the party, oh, I want an ice cream. It's like, no. Pollution, because <laughs> I know, and it's, it's 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 a hard one because you see all these little kids there, and then the, the engine is. So you can't just walk up to them and say it's bad for your health, can you? But then it's the social aspect of it. It's this man's work, you know, as well, and and that's his living, and and yeah, as I said, there are all sorts of different factors. You can't just fix the problem, and say yeah, just 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 go away. But then he has a family, you know, the family that needs to be fed, and unless you have solutions. You know, okay, change your ice cream van for this one, which is, you know, an electric van. And then, of course, I don't think he will not do it or he's purposely trying to, you know, mm-hmm. kill all these children. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. It's, it's the social context as well. Coming back to the, the Breed London study, uh, do you think that your results could be used in some sort of policy? Is there something here for the GLA or for the mayor of London? I think what this this work or in general the work that we we have been doing particularly with children offers the opportunity to or brings empirical data to highlight when and where children are exposed to air pollution and that can help prioritize solutions to reduce exposure to harmful pollutants and and also to, to reduce people's own contribution to the problem. Do you think there is a case for for example for GLA or possibly the mayor of London to say do not drive near a school at rush hour or do not drop off your kids for example a little further away from the school so there are not a lot of cars in one area how do you think if there is we all know there is a problem what would be the quickest fix in your opinion I think there is a lot of awareness campaigns and information already highlighting, you know, the the fact that you have to should go when you can to school, walking instead of using the car. Uh, that parents shouldn't really drop off children right in front of the school gate. They should do park and walk. But I think that although the advice and the information is there, the question is how we move from knowing that there is a problem to actually doing something about it and to get people to actually feel engaged enough to want to change their ways. I think this is this is the challenge. How do you get people to, to say, okay, I'm going to wake up today 10 minutes early and, and walk instead of taking the car? Those small changes that we have actually to make uh, at a 
personal level. I think this is the, the biggest challenges, uh, challenges because the advice and information, I think, is there. I think that we already, we, we know a lot about pollution. Everyone knows that pollution is bad, but how do we move from information to actually uh, action, really? I'm talking about personal level. Certainly there are things that need to happen at a policy level, and as I was telling you, there should be, if they are asking us to go to school by bicycle, well, certainly this should be the provision for children to be safe and to go to school. So they go hand in hand, but now if those provisions are there, are they really going to be used and how to engage people into, into doing that? I think that's, that's solid and good advice that you've just given that everybody has got their own part to play. It's an individual and a personal level as well as government and policy level. They go hand in hand, as you said. So for our listeners out there, if they had to make a change today, Diana, what would your advice be? I would say just leave the car home, adopt active travel, either walking, cycling, scooting. It's not only good for the environment, it's also good for your health. And yeah, and, and if you are walking, cycling or scooting, Avoid going through busy roads if you can take uh, shortcuts through the park or go through the back streets. Just trying to find quieter streets to walk on is more pleasant anyway. There's less noise and, uh, and you breathe less air pollution. It was a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, hopefully, a lot of us, if not some of us, can implement some of the work and some of the findings. If you want to read more on your work, um, are you on social media? Can we follow you there? What's your... Yes, of course, my Twitter handle is at Diana Baraden, so you can contact me that way. Uh, and also, if you're interested to know more about the research that we have been doing, our latest papers, one uh, has been published in Environmental Research, and the title is I am an air quality scientist using citizen science to characterize school children exposure to air pollution. The other paper has been published in the Journal of Emerging Science, which is a teacher's journal, and the title is Engaging Primary Students with the Issue of Air Pollution Through Citizen Science Lessons to be Learned.